Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the word that was just read. And now, as the word is to be preached, we ask for you, by your Spirit's power, to help us in this moment, to prepare our hearts to hear and to respond accordingly as your Spirit leads. We pray, Lord, that we may receive whatever word you have for us, and then may we turn around in obedience to carry it out in our lives. For your glory and for the good of your church, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you may know, we have been going through the book of Micah in a sermon series, which has a lot to say about justice, about knowing justice, respecting justice, and doing justice. And this was so important because the prophet lived during a time in Israel's history where great sins and injustices were being carried out, where the strong preyed on the weak where the rich exploited the poor and the nation's leaders, their kings, judges, prophets, priests. They either turned a blind eye or they themselves perpetuated the problem. The prophet Micah was given the unenviable task of being the one to confront power, to issue a rebuke against those in authority, to castigate the corrupt. And that's a risky business. That's the job, really, of a prophet. Prophets are called to boldly speak to power and to call out any abuses. In the scriptures, we see that happening quite often. We see Nathan calling out David, Elijah confronting Ahab, Jonah being sent to Nineveh and its king. And in the New Testament, we have John the Baptist challenging Herod. These are good examples of God's prophets speaking God's truth openly and publicly. Their messages weren't delivered in a synagogue or in a church to the faithful, to an audience that largely agreed with them. No, these prophets were functioning in all corners and on all levels of society, boldly speaking to power wherever it's found within any authority structure. That's just normal activity in prophetic ministry. Prophets didn't just speak to God's people. They spoke to all peoples, particularly to people in positions of power and influence, calling them to exercise their power and influence for justice and righteousness. But you know, this public confrontational nature of prophetic ministry, which is so normal in the scriptures is so abnormal for us today. Preaching, for example, is understood as a form of prophetic ministry where you proclaim the word of God. But in churches like ours, for those of us from an evangelical Bible church tradition, our image of preaching is often that of a shepherd feeding and encouraging his flock. We don't really picture him going after the wolves, rebuking them for all of their violent ways. We, we would probably think that's a bit too confrontational for our taste. We're not used to preachers speaking to power, challenging abuses of power by those in authority, calling for justice to be done. We actually get nervous when preachers preach like that. It sounds like something that you might hear in the pulpit of a liberal church that's committed to, to the social gospel. We want our preachers focused on helping people to believe and to follow a personal savior. 
We're not sure if we really want them addressing divisive and controversial issues in the news. It sounds like they're getting too political. Just preach the Bible. Well, this morning, friends, we plan to do that, to preach the Bible. But I hope you see that the Bible is calling not just preachers, but all of God's people to play a prophetic role in society, to openly and to publicly speak his truth in the public square, to not limit our Christianity to simply the pursuit of piety, but to make it about piety plus prophetic proclamation. So friends, as we study Micah chapter three this morning, we're going to see three sharp rebukes against those who have violated justice through the abuse of their power. And the bottom line, the bottom line warning is that the very justice that these corrupt leaders have been ignoring is coming and it's coming for them. So now let's look at this chapter. Let's see how Micah organizes this chapter within three separate addresses, three separate, but related rebukes. Let's consider the first rebuke that's found for us in verses one to four. Here we see first a rebuke of those who dehumanize others into consumable objects. Now in verse one, the audience is identified as the heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. That includes leaders of the Northern and the Southern kingdoms of Israel, but really with a focus on Judah, the Southern one, Commentators are going to tell you that Micah prophesied this oracle under the reign of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And by this time, the Assyrians had already wiped out the northern kingdom and they were threatening Judah. So listen to verse one. And I said, hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? So these heads... These leaders were responsible for knowing and administering justice. That means we're talking about ruling magistrates. We're talking about judges in the land of which the king himself would be the highest judge. Now courts in ancient Israel were meant to be a recourse for the weak against the abuses of the strong. They were an achievement of civilization. I mean, just imagine if you lived in a society where might makes right, where the rich and the powerful can do just whatever they want, because there's no one to stop them. No one to check their power. That would be a terrible place to live. It is a societal achievement to have a functioning court system, but functioning is the key word. In Micah's day, the very courts designed to be a recourse for the weak became the instrument of their oppression. It mentions later on in verse 11 that these judges accepted bribes in order to turn a blind eye to corruption. In chapter two, we saw how the rich lent money to the poor at exorbitant rates, leading them to default on their loans. And then the rich would come in and they would foreclose the land and take from the poor their family inheritance. And the end result was that the poor in Judah were becoming more and more dependent on wealthy landowners who were simply taking advantage of them. And when they would turn to the courts for help, when they would go to the judges to plead for justice, they were turned away or abused even further. Now, Micah 
tries to get the attention of these corrupt judges by using some very grotesque imagery. He is doing this in order to convey the wickedness of their behavior. So listen to verses two and three. You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh, flesh in a cauldron. And that's some shocking language. He's describing cannibalism. Now notice how God emphasizes how these are people that you're abusing my people, he says, and yet you've denied the image of God imprinted on the soul of each person. Instead, you're treating them like animals, treating them like livestock prepared for slaughter to end up like meat in a nice stew for you to consume. And that really is Micah's point. These judges have dehumanized people. They are treating them like animals, like consumable objects. When a poor Israelite entered their court pleading for justice, well, they didn't see a a person anymore precious in the sight of God. No, they saw financial profit. They saw an object that they could use and consume for their own selfish gain. They chewed up the poor and they spat them out whenever they were done with them. Now, If you think about it, this way of treating people or really mistreating people as less than human really plagues all societies in all generations from ancient Israel to our modern day. I mean, just think about how some of the great injustices of our day are attributed to a similar dehumanization of those who are made precious in the image of God. Racism, for example is a pernicious way of dehumanizing people, treating them as less than human because of the color of their skin. And sadly, the justice system in our nation has had a sordid pass of ignoring race-based inequalities or even perpetuating them. In such cases, these injustices need to be exposed and publicly rebuked and Lord willing, Christians will be the first ones to speak up. I mean, that's really the enduring legacy of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. Civil rights leaders, most of whom were pastors, spoke to power and they called out the various abuses. And instead of dividing society even further, like you see some people doing today, Christians in the civil rights movement appeal to our common humanity, to our better angels, reminding us that no matter our our outward appearance, we all share inwardly the image of God. That's the message that we need to be proclaiming today. You know, another injustice of our day would be the pornography industry in the way that it dehumanizes women treating them as less than human, as mere objects to gratify a man's lust. And what's more alarming is the mounting evidence that porn consumption is fueling the sex trade. Sex trafficking is the most profitable form of human trafficking and pornography creates the demand for that wicked industry. So how can we treat pornography as some sort of harmless vice? And how can we stay silent when the courts protect pornography as a harmless form of free expression? 
No, it is an injustice against the women and it deserves to be rebuked. And the same argument could be made against the abortion industry in the way that it dehumanizes babies, treating them as less than human based on their developmental size, based on how, how big they are. I know that Michael was being figurative in verses two to three, but it's heartbreaking to know that many of the surgical abortive procedures come very close to resembling the violence that he's depicting in these verses. Those procedures can only be justified by dehumanizing the unborn and the courts where you would expect to find recourse for the weakest and the most helpless in society. The courts have largely ignored the cries of the unborn and continue to protect the supposed right to unjustly end their life. So whether we're dealing with abortion or pornography in the sex trade or racial inequalities or economic injustices, like in Micah's day, whatever the abuse It's this dehumanizing way of treating people that elicits God's anger and moves him to respond in judgment. And that's what we see Micah stressing in verse four. Those in positions of power and influence who perpetuate these injustices, who ignore the cries of the oppressed, will themselves one day cry out to the Lord and hear no answer. They will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. God will hide his face from them on that day of judgment. His rebuke of them will be final and irreversible. So church, what does this mean for us? Well, it means that we have to be attentive, not just to the sins and abuses that we find in the pews, but to what's happening in the public square. As Christians, we need to regain our prophetic voice. And we do that by calling out injustice and living out God's righteousness, stewarding whatever power he's entrusted to us to work towards the good and the welfare of society. And at the same time, we have to be careful not to abuse our own power and to treat others as less than who they are in the image of God. Now, thankfully, thankfully, we have Jesus as the best example of how to wield great power and influence for good. You see, when he came to this earth, he didn't come to use people. He didn't treat us like objects to be consumed for his own gain. No, instead, he came to serve us. He came to offer himself up for us. In fact, he came to invite his followers to consume him, to eat of his flesh and to drink of his blood. Of course, we're talking about the Lord's Supper, where we partake of the elements in remembrance of the death that he died for us. And so friends, if we stick close to Jesus, and if we allow his sacrificial death to shape us, to shape our attitude, it is going to help us to recapture that prophetic voice, to speak into society, not from, not from a position of superiority, but from a posture of Christ-like humility, to be humble and yet to still be bold enough to speak to power 
and to call out injustice whenever we see it. That's the first rebuke that's found in verses one to four, and that's directed at the judges of Israel. Well, let's turn our attention now to verses five to eight, and we're going to see a second rebuke. And this one is directed towards the prophets of Israel. Here we see second, a rebuke of those who commodify others into revenue streams. Micah is calling out prophets who are misusing their office to profit off of others. Listen to verse five. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Now, the way that verse starts off with thus says the Lord, well, that's the typical formula for a prophet. Whatever comes out of your mouth when you're prophesying is what the Lord says. You only speak God's word, God's truth, no matter if the audience wants to hear it or not. But that's not how these prophets were operating. They were functioning more like fortune tellers. You get what you pay for. And so if you approach them looking for a word from the Lord, and if you bring with you a nice gift, some delicacy for them to eat, well, then you're going to get a positive uplifting message from God. But if you come empty handed, if you have nothing for them, then they'll leave you with a negative damning message from the Lord. Now that's obviously a gross abuse of power and authority. They are manipulating people. They're only valuing you based on how much they can profit off of you. That's what we mean by commodifying people into revenue streams. The very people that they are called to serve are now serving for them as sources of income. Now, the contemporary example of this injustice is really not too hard to identify. Prosperity preachers and religious hucksters are the modern equivalents of these prophets that are under rebuke. Whenever you hear a preacher on stage or, or through a screen telling you that they're going to offer up a prayer for you, or they're going to promise you some kind of healing. If, if you show your faith by planting a seed by which they really mean giving them a monetary gift, well, then you know exactly who and what you're dealing with. You're dealing with a false prophet who is treating you as a revenue stream, who has commodified you. Now, don't hear me wrong. I, I'm not saying that any church that encourages its members to give is perpetuating this particular injustice. I think there is a legitimate place for asking members to give financially, but it's not in order to meet the bottom line. Churches should treat their givers not as revenue streams, but as worshipers and co-laborers in its mission. So when you give to our church, don't do it with the expectation that you're going to get a better sermon out of it. I'm sorry to disappoint. And, and don't do it because you think that God is going to bless you more. Now you give as an act of worship and you give as an expression of commitment to our mission to make God loving and compassionate disciples of Jesus Christ among all nations. So friends, let's stay alert to the religious leaders of our day who are treating their followers like commodities, like what the pro prophets in Micah's day were doing. Now let's keep reading and let's see the consequences 
of this action of what these prophets would face. Look with me at verses six to seven. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. So because of their corrupt speech, they're going to get no speech from God. The Lord will darken their counsel and with no answers from him, they're going to lose their prophetic authority. And instead they're going to gain shame. The act of covering your lips, literally covering your beard was understood in those days to be a sign of shameful humiliation. But Micah, as you see on the other hand, exemplifies the proper motivation of a prophet. Listen to what he says in verse eight. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So where did Micah get the boldness to speak to power, to speak against power, to declare the transgressions and sins of those in position uh, in the position of highest authority? How did he have the moral courage? Well, it's because he was filled with the right stuff. The prophets in verse five were filled with greed. They were motivated by money. But Micah, on the other hand, was filled with power in the spirit and motivated by justice. And that is what enabled him to speak so boldly to the point that he openly challenged sinful people and sinful structures. And friends, isn't that exactly what we need today? We need more Christians who are willing to speak to power and to call out abuses, to rebuke unjust systems and authority structures, to do so all in the name of the Lord, the Lord who stands on the side of justice and righteousness. But if we're filled with the love of money, if we're filled with greed, if financial security or career advancement is what drives us, then we'll quickly shut our mouths and get in line. We won't rock the boat. We won't challenge the status quo, especially if doing so is going to affect our revenue stream. Only those who are filled with power, only those who are filled with the spirit of the Lord, only those who are filled with justice and might, only they will be liberated from the love of money and able to preach boldly to power, no matter the cost. Oh, may that be us. I so want that to describe us as a church, that we may be a spirit filled people who have regained our prophetic voice and the courage to rebuke injustice whenever we see it. So we have seen two rebukes so far in Micah three. There's one more in verses nine to 12 friends. This third rebuke is issued more generally to all the leaders of Israel, to her judges, prophets, and priests, because they have collectively failed in their duty to lead. And yet they remain aloof. They, they have this false sense of security thinking that they're good with God. But here we see, thirdly, a rebuke of those who violate justice and yet feel securely justified. Listen to verses 9 and 10. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob 
and the rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. The heads of Judah, their priests and their prophets were responsible to know justice and to administer it rightly. But here it says that they detest justice and they make crooked that which is straight. Now, the specific abuse that Micah had in mind may have referred to the grueling manual labor that many were forced into as the city of Jerusalem significantly expanded during the reign of Hezekiah. After the Northern kingdom was defeated, there was a flood of refugees into Jerusalem coming from the North and the city grew three to fourfold in size. And there were massive building projects going on. Most of it focused on preparing for a siege from the coming Assyrians. And so this included the building of the city walls in order to strengthen its defenses and the building of underground tunnels in order to divert water into the city. These projects required a massive amount of manual labor and they extracted a severe toll on human life. And yet these leaders either turned a blind eye or directly profited off their backs. So keep reading in verse 11. It's heads give judgment for a bribe. It's priests teach for a price. It's prophets practice divination for money. So these judges, priests and prophets were all greedy and simply looking out for themselves. And notice how they were so clueless to how wicked their behavior was, how noxious their actions were before God. He was disgusted by them. And yet they had no clue. They had a false sense of security. Keep reading. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. You see, they, they looked to the temple of God in the midst of the city situated on Mount Zion. And they had an overwhelming sense of confidence that God was on their side. They felt justified in their behavior. They assuaged their consciences by the, present, the apparent presence of the Lord in their midst. Clearly things can't be all that bad if the Lord is still among us, if he's still on our side. Now, clearly, clearly they were mistaken. And you would think that no one would think like this anymore, that no one would imagine that you could participate in grave injustices that you could abuse your power, that you could dehumanize and commodify people into objects in order to serve yourself and still think that God would be on your side. No one would be that foolish to think like that, would they? But sadly, sadly, that's the state of things today. Government leaders, political parties, religious leaders, including pastors, many of them would appeal to our identity as a supposedly Christian nation and thereby assume that God is on our side, that God blesses America. We feel securely justified, but all the while there are grave injustices being committed in our land. Hundreds of thousands of human beings are being dehumanized, commodified, and consumed to gratify the needs and the hunger of others, especially those in power. We already mentioned racial inequalities, pornography, sex trafficking, and abortion. 
There are people this very day being oppressed, being manipulated, being slaughtered in these situations. And there are leaders across the spectrum, governmental, judicial, civil, corporate, religious leaders in all spheres who are either ignoring the problems or perpetuating them. How can we be so brash as to assume God is on the side of this nation? If anything, this nation needs to get on the side of God, on the side of justice and righteousness as revealed in scripture. And friends, what's going to turn our nation around is repentance, not an election. I, I know so many people are pinning their hopes on their party winning big this November. But no matter who is in office, the question remains the same. It's not about whose side is God on. It's about who's on God's side. And if we refuse to repent, to turn around, if we continue to tolerate the injustices and the abuses of power in our land, then God is going to come in judgment as he did for Judah. That's what we see in verse 12. Look there. It starts with therefore. So in light of all of these injustices that we talk about, this is what's coming. Therefore, because of you, Zion, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house, a wooden, a wooded height. So in other words, Micah predicts that the temple of the Lord that which you assume is a symbol of God's favor upon this city, that temple will be utterly destroyed. That mountaintop called Zion, where the temple currently proudly sits, will become a patch of wild forest. That's the judgment coming upon them. And that, if you think about it, it's a real depressing way to end a chapter. But even though Micah chapter three has a pretty dismal ending. If you keep on reading in the book, you will see oracles of hope. We'll see that God is not done with Zion. In chapter four, we're told that there will be another temple. There will be another house of God on the mountain of the Lord. But then in chapter five, Micah moves the spotlight off a focus on the temple and now onto a person onto a future shepherd king who will arise from the town of David from Bethlehem. And as the story goes, this shepherd king will accomplish what the kings, priests, and prophets of Israel fail to do. He will succeed them as the good king, the great high priest, the true prophet who not only speaks truth, but is truth himself. And when he finally did appear on the scene, this Messiah, he predicted just like Micah, the destruction of the temple in his day. But unlike Micah, Jesus had the audacity to point to himself as the new temple of God. And what Jesus meant by that is that now the atonement of sin is found in him. Now he is who you go to. If you want to worship God, if you want to meet the Lord, you don't go to a building. You go to a person, you go to Jesus Christ. Friends, let's not forget that. 
Let's not forget that gospel hope that's found in the person and work of Christ. I mean, Micah, as you're going to see in the rest of this book, he points his audience in the direction of that hope. And so please don't get this impression that a prophetic voice only sounds like a rebuke. No, that prophetic voice, I hope that we can recapture also sounds like hope. When we rebuke those who violate justice, we also hold out gospel hope that they will repent and that they will turn around and they will seek God's face and not find it hidden, but instead shining upon them. And historically, we know that Micah's prophetic voice had that very effect. If you read in Jeremiah chapter 26, verses 17 to 19, it tells us that Hezekiah, the king, and the people of Jerusalem responded to Micah's own preaching with that very response of repentance and faith. And the Lord spared them. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple did not occur in their day because they repented. They listened to the preaching of God's word and they turned to the Lord. And so if anyone listening is unsure if God's face is shining on you or if it's still hidden from you, if you're not sure if you are safe from the coming judgment of the Lord, then your only hope, your only recourse is to go to the temple of God and to seek forgiveness. And that means you go to Jesus, go to Jesus and look to him for mercy and trust in him that the justice that your sins deserve have been, has been nailed on the cross where he died for you. Go to Jesus, my friends, and receive from him an abundant mercy. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for how it ends with, with uh, uh, hope and mercy that is a found available to us in the gospel of Jesus. And I pray that this gospel may shape our attitude, shape our hearts so that we might be bold to speak your word, to speak to power that we might call those in power to humbly repent and to turn to you as we have done. So, Oh Lord, may you embolden us. May you empower your church, especially in times like these. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.